Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 17. We're recording on Friday, August 30th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are the editors of bookriot.com. Jeff, how's it going? I, I just woke up. Uh, and at 11 o'clock in at the morning. 11, well, you know. Not else, for the first time not today, Not for the though. first time today. It's been a rough week here at uh, the O'Neill Castle. Um, I'm fine, I, and thank you for doing the read at the top. You sounded wonderful. You well, sounded thanks. Yeah, full I'm of en- mirth. I'm enjoying Jeff O'Neill, Barry White I know. edition. It's gonna be, I'm a little dazed and confused. I should be being hit on the butt by uh, Ben Affleck right now. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> hey there. Uh, so, but we're having fun. It's, you know, more news. This, I say this every week, and I'm like, okay, it's a week before Labor Day. Half mm-hmm. of publishing is, um, you know, elsewhere. We're going to have hard things to talk about. And yet we've got too many stories. We're going to we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to yeah, cut there's, stuff. There's always something. And so which I is, was wrong. Which is kind of great. I love that. Yeah. All right. We don't want to get this. So we're going to talk about Barnes & Noble yet again. I know we're getting excited to talk about Barnes & Noble again. But we have one more follow-up um, from the Barnes & Noble situation. So last week we talked about how on their most recent earnings call, they reversed course on uh, their relationship to their own e-readers. And basically um, some of the... Uh, some of the uh, weakness, I guess, they were showing before and their confidence in the Nook brand and media business seems to have reversed. And then we get one little twist of the knife here mm-hmm. last week. So why don't you tell us about what that twist so of the knife was? So Barnes & Noble's retail CEO, his name is Mitchell Clipper, uh, this past week sold off a large portion of his stock in the company. Yeah, uh, He sold off 400,000 shares which uh, was about two-thirds of the stock that he owned in Barnes & Noble um, for $5.5 million. This is not a vote of confidence. I mean, mean, in all fairness, like CEOs do this when they have options and they divest their options over time so that, you know, so much Mm -hmm. of their investment is not just in the company they work for. But, like, to sell most of it that you have... doesn't indicate it's that not he thinks a good the, sign, yeah. It doesn't even indicate if, that he thinks the value is going yeah, to increase. Even if it is prudent for him personally, like as a part of a larger portfolio move, as a public signal, it's super bad. Oh man, the timing! The timing is, not is great. so bad. Like, could he not know? Like, because the other thing is that Barnes and Noble stock took a plunge right after the mm-hmm. most recent earnings call. So it's not like he's capitalizing on a peak or something. So. I don't know. It's not. It's not good. Uh, yeah, this feels like we his both red saw lights this are flashing. Story and we're like, oh man. Yeah, that's that feels to me like somebody hitting their eject button when yeah. the plane's going down. Right, and then not caring if they everyone sees their eject button <laughs> right. going out on the way down too. So we're hope we're pulling for Barnes and Noble, and we're trying to put a positive spin on things. I think. Um, and hoping the best for them because we both have romantic attachments to Barnes and Noble, and you know it's it's good for people to have bookstores around them, but boy, oh boy, mm-hmm. that's not, not a, a great sign. sign. I don't know. It is man. not. 
I don't Let's know. talk about something a little bit happier then. Okay. Let's talk about Audible. Let's do our sponsor because we got yeah. stories to go to, and, and I've got a I've got a hook for one of the stories from today actually. But Audible.com, they've changed it. We've been saying a hundred thousand titles. Mm-hmm. They now have one hundred and fifty thousand titles Holy to choose from. Moly. So that has an increase of fifty percent. So Audible.com, you know, audiobooks you can listen to them on any device you that really can work, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you're sporting like a disc man, um, you can do audible.com, your smartphone, on your PC, on your tablet. Uh, even some e-readers work with audiobooks. Any genre you want, um, from sci-fi, horror, mystery, nonfiction. Um, we both like nonfiction on audiobooks. We've been talking about I, I particularly like nonfiction mm-hmm. on audiobooks. Um, and you, if you want to try it out, if you've never tried it out before, um, go to audibletrial.com slash book riot, and you can get a free audiobook that includes a 30 day membership to see if it works for you. Um, and if it doesn't work, you can end your membership. No, no harm, no foul. Mm-hmm. But if you want to keep going, basically we charge 15 bucks a month and that's good for one credit, one book per month. Yeah. And you can, you can activate and deactivate sort of as well yeah. at will, uh, which like works Netflix. really well. That kind of works like Netflix. Like you want it yeah. for the summertime, turn on Netflix exactly. and you want it, you know, and it's TV season in the fall and you don't have time to watch different movies, turn it off. Yeah. And I know, you know, you have sort of consistent travel around the city where yeah. you're um, yep. on and off the train That's you know, right. pretty much all throughout the year. Um, but for, for me, I'm, I'm in heavy audiobook season in the summer and then right around the holidays when right. I'm traveling a lot, when we're in the car, when there's just like stuff to be done when I'm not sitting at my desk. And so I usually uh, activate Audible for the summer and then I deactivate for a couple right. months in the fall and then I activate it again in December. And I'm and maybe the Audible people, that's probably not their favorite thing, but it's um, super yeah. easy it do. is easy to do. And uh, also, you know, if you want to do more than one audiobook a month, the more you sign up for per month, you get a better deal per title. Yeah, so those are it's three, a nice sort of scaled yeah. uh, rate of pay for that. It's kind of like you know, when you go to the movies and the, the cheapest Coke is like five bucks, and but the biggest one is like five fifty. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, it's like, God dang it. I have to get the big one for 50 cents. So they, 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 they want to push you up if you want to go there. They're going to help you up uh, so, the ladder. So we both have recommendations this week. Yeah, you go first. I'll go first because yours has the hook. Yeah, the hook. The hook. Yeah. Barry White has the hook. <laughs> <laughs> he has his hooks in you. <laughs> uh, I have not been drinking this morning, I promise. <laughs> so this book is close to your heart. Oh, man. This book is so close to my heart. This book broke me and then put me back together um, earlier this year, several times over. Um, when Women Were Birds by Terry Tempest Williams. Um, the the premise here, it's a memoir, uh, sort of that memoir slash poetry slash meditations. Um, I'm not even, I'm still not really sure how to be articulate about it, but um, when Terry Tempest Williams' mother was 54, she passed away and she left Terry all of her journals. Um, they come from a Mormon family and in Mormon culture, um, it's a, a huge part of life for women to keep journals and often to leave them behind for their children as their legacy. And so um, Terry, who is a writer, gets her mother's journals um, and then opens them and discovers that this whole shelf full of journals, every journal is blank. And um, this book, When Women Were Birds, is composed of 54 variations on voice, 54 vignettes, um, short essay pieces in which Terry is trying to figure out what was her mother doing 
keeping these blank journals? What was she saying to her by leaving them to her? What, like, what does this mean? What does it mean to have a voice and then to choose not to use your voice? Um, and it's also just sort of about womanhood in a, in a lot of ways and finding your place in the world. Um, I, for the first, like the only time in my reading life, um, closed the book, immediately started it over, mm-hmm. finished it the second time, started it over a third time, then started it over a fourth time, uh, and then spent a couple of weeks, you know, trying to write an essay to figure out what was going on with me and this book. So I've read it and read it and read it and read it. And it just lives permanently on my bedside table now. And Terry reads the audio version mm. of this. And let me tell you, it's like going to church. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, if you are a person for whom books are like going to church, um, I would highly recommend that you give this a shot. Uh, you might not want to listen to it in public because you will probably cry, uh, but you'll be like so glad you're crying and that Terry is making you cry. It's beautiful. Um, it's just a really beautiful book and she does a beautiful job reading it. And, and my pick, I mean, if you're talking about beautiful language and beautiful mm. experience on audiobook, um, my pick is uh, Seamus Haney's translation of Beowulf um, that's available that's- through audible.com. And I would recommend that anyway. If I'd have thought about it before, I would have recommended it before. But Seamus Haney, unfortunately, um, passed away yesterday. Uh, the Irish mm-hmm. poet, translator, lecturer, and 1995 Nobel laureate um, at the age of 74 years old passed away. And so if you are interested in Seamus Haney now that you're hearing about him and this is a good time as any to, to try him out, boy, he reads his own translation and he has just one of those beautiful Irish accents reading this story of, <clears throat> excuse me, the, you know, one of the elemental and fundamental stories of the, the English Isles of Beowulf. And it's, it's amazing. It's really, it's really great. It's, it's, if uh, Terry Tempest Williams book is a, uh, is going to church, Beowulf is a sacred text. Mm. Um, and Haney reading it is just great. And it's, and it's an approachable and beautiful translation. Um, the, the, the version on Audible is abridged, so it's only about two hours and 15 minutes. So it covered most of the story and leaves out some of the fractures and fragments of, of the full Beowulf text as we have it. But definitely check that out if you're interested in, in listening to it. It's a great story with great language um, and a master who was almost sort of born to, to translate it. And let me tell you a little more about Seamus Haney. He'll be our author of the week. Um, I don't want to do too many of these um, weeks where we talk about some of those past because that's just too sad, but you can't let this go. So he was born uh, 13th of April, uh, 1939, mm-hmm. and he was born in a farmhouse, huh. um, a farmhouse somewhere between Castle Dawson and Tonebridge in Northern Ireland. The farmhouse actually, you know, it's one of these, it's like, it's like the Shire, like even the farmhouses <laughs> have names. Like this was the farmhouse called Moss Bond. Mm. And um, he was the first of nine children of a cattle herding and trading family. Um, So of the land, for sure. Um, His father was the eighth of 10 children. So like, you know, these are good, big Irish Catholic families. Um, And that's, that's a, that's a good enough nugget that he was born in a farmhouse. But the other nugget I want to give you is like when he went away to school at Queens University in Belfast, um, he happened upon a copy of um, some of Ted Hughes's poetry and it changed his life and it made him decide to be a poet. Um, mm. So it's, he's, you know, one of the, one of, one of the, the living legends until yesterday, but someone we've always pointed to as like 
one of the grandmasters of uh, Anglophone letters. Um, and it's very sad to have him pass, but boy, did he leave the marks. Go check out his list of works, and a lot of them you can find. I think Beowulf was really the one. His translation was a big deal. Like, it was a crossover hit, like, into Maine. Do you remember that when that translation came out? I I sort of do. Um, I... I think his translation of Beowulf is the only thing of his yeah. that that I've read. And Twitter today is just a flurry yeah. of, of people tweeting other really wonderful um, Seamus Haney lines of poetry. Yeah. Um, so I'll be, I'll be, you know, looking for recommendations of where to go there. But I remember that coming out. Um, I think it was maybe after I was in high school, or at least if it, if I, if it was already available when I was in mm-hmm. high school, I read a lesser translation and the only audio version of Beowulf that I've had the pleasure of listening to was like some really old dude reading it in middle right. English. Sure. Probably because it was probably public domain, right. That someone read. And that right. Way, and they yeah. were like, and you are going to listen to this in middle English, even mm-hmm. though you won't understand a word of it because of reasons. Um, if you want to, there are three collected editions of his poetry. mm -hmm. All of them are great. Um, I especially like the 1990 new selected poems, which collects his poems from 1966 to 1987. Great. Um, that's where I would go. If you want to go right into the, the poetry he has, um, there's an excellent collection of nonfiction. He was a long time lecturer and professor of poetry at both Harvard um, and I can't remember now if it was Cambridge or Oxford. Anyway, the, uh, there's a collection of um, his lectures on poetry called The Redress of Poetry, hmm. um, which is really great if you're interested in, in think, cool. thinky stuff. Oh, Oxford. Yeah, Oxford. So those are places to go. And if you, and if you like those, there's a whole wealth um, and treasure trove of uh, Seamus Haney to find. So I guess that was a sponsored audibletrial.com slash book where you can try those out. And if you don't want to try the Beowulf audiobook, but, you know, find, find, a, find a way to go read some Haney this week. Poets.org, you can find some stuff. Just search for his name and they'll have some selected stuff up there. Okay. Well, speaking of dead writers. Speaking of dead writers. So uh, I said a few weeks ago when the J.K. Rowling, Rowling, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't correct myself, <laughs> Rowling, uh, news came out that she was actually the person behind this book called The Cuckoo's Calling by uh-huh. a non-entity named Robert Galbraith. I said, here it is, the biggest publishing story of the year. There but. can be none bigger. And because right when the universe heard me say that, they started they started cooking up something for us. Yes, the Booknet just lives to prove you wrong. That's Jeff. right. That's, it's just that's a, what it it's is. A, it's a, a steady stream of humiliation. Um, and the big story this week is coming out that. Um, there is new J.D. Salinger on the horizon for us. And not just one new J.D. Salinger. Not just one. And it's not some, my son is going to finish it, or my literary estate is going to have someone piece it together. Right. These are a legitimate, authorized, planned for releases Mm -hmm. by Salinger himself before he died. Right. Five of them. Five books. So there's this Salinger documentary. That is out now. Yeah, that I guess the, that's the that's the um, precipitating event for this story to yeah, come out. The, right? Yeah, the the Weinstein brothers produced and and I'm sort of surprised that they managed to keep this piece of it under wraps until the documentary actually came out. Like mm-hmm. a, a week or so ago, there were pieces out saying that the Weinstein brothers were and like Harvey Weinstein begs you not to spoil the Salinger documentary <laughs> when, you, when you write about it on the internet, as you inevitably will. And then of course everyone wrote about it on the internet and spoiled it um, because how do you not? You can't share you have to say that this this detail that there are five Salinger books that um, are planned at least to be, five apparently yeah to be released in a sequence that he intended to start as early as 2015. Yeah. Um, but 
yeah, this is part of his estate. Um, instructions were left for this, right, at least five additional books. Um, one is a collection to be called The Family Glass that adds five new stories to um, the previously published work about the fictional glass fam- family, which were in uh, Franny and Zoe. I just can't be more excited about that one. Yeah. Which one are you most excited for? Oh, sorry, I interrupted. What are the other ones? Tell us. Oh, I don't know. Let's see. My, my enthusiasm is burbling up into uh, uh, rudeness. I'm intrigued by this next title. Um, retooled version of a publicly known but unpublished tale, The Last and Best of the Peter Pans, uh, which is to be collected with new stories and existing work about the Caulfields. Mm. I'm sort of, I mean... I know it is no longer cool to love the catcher in the rye, but I am really intrigued about what else is going on in the Caulfield family. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty stoked. I will I will read all of these. Yeah, me too. If they would drop them all on one day, like in a Netflix new season style dump, like if all five new Salinger books came out at once in a boxed set mm. and like hear my cry publishers. I will buy these. Well, and there's also, I guess, a novella about his years in World War II. Like, Salinger mm-hmm. was at Normandy. Like, he was in the thick of it. Um, he yeah. wasn't sort of like a reporter back at HQ, you know, mm-hmm. doing stuff like that. Like, he was down there in the trenches. And, you know, some theories have been that he suffered from PTSD later in life. I, I don't know if that's true right. or not. But I only bring that up to say that, like, he had a, a serious heat of the flame world war ii experience and mm-hmm. i'm excited about that yeah like, there's that to one see actually what that is about here's the one that's probably going to scratch all my itches is um a, a story filled quote-unquote manual of the vedanta religious philosophy i have no idea what that is um, yeah, he got into eastern religions yeah and- but apparently salinger was deeply involved in that and you know how i love an unusual religious memoir nice. story He's just coming at us from all angles here. Yeah, and then there's also um, a novel based on his first marriage. Which and that's all is it says, also based... crazy. Did you read right. about that? His no, first I major? didn't. I was going to say, I don't know anything so about his first marriage. he married a German national after World War II. Mm-hmm. And so they come back to the States. And apparently this is all stuff that's going to be detailed in the book. Um, the biography that's coming out that the documentary is sort of related to. I forget the woman's name, but they came back and essentially some of Salinger's friends started to wonder and speculate that she had been an informant for the Gestapo. Mm. And one day, like a few weeks after they came back to the States, like she wakes up and there's a plane ticket for Germany that he left for her on the pillow and they never spoke again. Whoa. Like, what the heck, man? And then That's... there's all these other details about he has some, let's just say, uncomfortable relationships with young women Mm. pen pals that turn into something later. It doesn't look like it's criminal behavior, but, but Humbert Humberty. No, older, 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 Mm. but no one likes 53 to 18, even as legal as that is. Yeah. That's cringeworthy. We don't like that. That's not Mm. something the the general public, uh, your humble hosts included in that, I think don't particularly um, like hearing about. So those details are going to come out too. Uh, it's unclear exactly who the sources for all this new information were, mm-hmm. um, but it does look like um, uh, that uh, a friend of his from World War II, I'm just trying to find the name, uh, it doesn't matter, up in the show notes, who had a wealth of Salinger letters and photographs, and then maybe one of these young women who we correspond with over the course of time, both, got, uh, both were gotten to and convinced to talk. Um, so that's that's interesting stuff to hear about as well. Any other details we should follow up on 
What else is mm-hmm. new? That's so. I guess the big there's five of them. They're there's approved by Salinger. Apparently, they're complete. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're ready to go. I don't know why we're waiting until 2015. But, I guess it just I takes think, a while. Well, he died in 2010. So if they were talking about it, if he was talking about this with his family uh, in the months leading up to his death, maybe they agreed on. I'm like completely guessing, but maybe they agreed right. on some sort of five year. Sure, window. that makes sense. Yeah, like five years after I'm gone, mm-hmm. um, you can you, you can, can start take it this. over and start it going. Sure. So that will be the publishing event of 2015 mm-hmm. um, going forward. I would think, but I've been wrong about that sort of thing before. Probably, you know be, what? Rowling, Rowling will release Harry Potter eight. Right, it will be a publishing event of yeah, 2015. <laughs> it will be there. It'll be there. So that's exciting news for all that's of us. That's really who, exciting. Um, have followed Salinger and always hoped and wondered. You know, it was long speculated. Like the rumors were that he was always working. Sure. Um, that he was just like hanging out, and being reclusive, yeah, and writing. Some of the speculation was that it was like kind of like Nicholson and. The Shining. Like, mm-hmm. it's just sort of gibberish, or maybe it's not ever going to be worth the light of day, or it's just nut stuff. But, but they could sell that stuff, too. Well, they could sell that stuff, too, but maybe the estate wouldn't be so uh, right, interested. Right, not so in. great for the reputation. Yeah. So let's move on to other books. Other the the books. big book riot story of this week. The big book riot story. So we do those. Uh, we do these monthly polls where we ask our readers all sorts of questions about their reading lives. And um, last month's question was, what are the books that you've pretended to have read? And so we decided to flip that around this month, um, mainly because a lot of readers suggested that we do it and um, and ask, what are the books that you're embarrassed to admit that you have read? Uh, so we had 581 readers who took the poll. And they listed 380 unique titles. So um, tons of variety Mm -hmm. in the full set of responses. And we'll drop the link to the results in the show notes. And there's a link inside that post um, to the full set. Like you can Mm -hmm. read, you can look at the spreadsheet of every book that people listed uh, that they were embarrassed to admit that they've read. So we've got the top 10 here and there's quite a spread. Um, Number one. Well, it's pretty top heavy, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Number one. I'm not surprised. Uh, 315 votes for the Twilight Saga. And then number two is the Fifty Shades trilogy. We lumped all those titles into one mm-hmm. um, for the ones that, and the same with Twilight, the, all three right. books on Twilight Saga. So 315 votes for Twilight Saga and 178 votes for Fifty Shades. And actually, if you took the total votes for numbers two through 10, Still, the Twilight Saga has more total votes for right. shame. <laughs> Number uh, three is our boy. Our boy, Dan Brown. For the Da Vinci Code. Uh, and the number four is any mention of romance novels. A lot of people took this survey and just uh, rather than putting in the title of a romance novel, just wrote romance or, you know, trashy romance novels. Um, and they so, can't, is that because they can't even remember the name or there's so many or, of them it doesn't maybe, matter which one uh, it is? I think it's there that there were so many. Um, it's funny. One of the most interesting things for me about going through the responses on these is that all of the surveys are anonymous, but people leave all kinds of explanations yeah. in there. Like, like I'm to send them a, a note to their right. mother like saying, somehow, you know what, you know your daughter's been reading The Da Vinci Code. Uh, right. Does she or have like a if, reason? If somehow I'm going to suss out who they were and right. judge them, judge their anonymous survey responses. So they they explain things like, um, like for the Twilight ones, it would be like the Twilight books, but I only read the first one and half of the second one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or uh, romance novels. I read, you know, a million of those when I was 18, but then I stopped, I swear. Um, yeah. Uh, so um, then get, the romance novels, then Hunger Games series, mm-hmm. then the Sookie Stackhouse books. And then um, we're both the most surprised by number seven. Let's take a minute the, on number this seven. This is the head scratcher for me. 
is The Bridges of Madison County by Robert James Waller. Uh, so it places number seven on the list. 14 readers mentioned it, that they were embarrassed to. So I guess it's not a it. lot of mentions in aggregate, but it does, you know, in terms of total come to the top. And then it bubbled up. Eight, nine, and 10 are Flowers in the Attic, Atlas Shrugged, and Anne Rice's Sleeping Beauty series, which Mm -hmm. is erotica that she wrote under the pen name Ann Rokolar. So Bridges of Madison County, I was was just surprised. Like who cares enough to be ashamed about it? I guess that's what what we were both talking about before the show. I felt like who has thought about the Bridges of Madison County in yeah. the last in the last ten years? It um, it came out in 1992, and I got sort of I, I nerded out on the Bridges <laughs> of Madison County this week and did a bunch of like digging. There's online a sentence about, I thought I bet you never thought you would say. <laughs> seriously, uh, it came out in 1992. It came out to sort of no fanfare. Yeah. Um, the author would sit at the Walden books in his local mall, like, you know, with a table set up of his books, Walden books or B Dalton. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. He would sit in the bookstore at his local mall with a table, like just hoping that someone would stop by and pick up his book and get it signed. Um, the publishers packaged it. Interestingly, they wrote notes to independent booksellers, encouraging them to hand sell it. Um, which is a thing that still happens commonly today. You know, when, when a, a publisher has a feeling that a book could be a word of mouth hit, they push it really hard mm-hmm. to uh, the booksellers that are going to hand sell it. So it starts gaining steam that way. Um, indie booksellers hand sell it. But then the big break comes when they get a movie deal mm-hmm. and then Oprah reads The Bridges of Madison County. Um, and this is pre Oprah book club. Mm. Uh, but she reads the bridges of Madison County. Uh, she does an interview with the author on one of the covered bridges for which the book is named. And she, uh, she tells her audience is, I think this is in 1994 that this is the best book that she's read this year. And, uh, it can be heard in the interview that she leans over to him and says, um, something like, you know, by this time next week, you won't even be able to buy a copy of this book in this country because everyone will want it now. Wow. Um, so pretty like that, like, like that's a common story well, so, of, of how a book gets so it was made. really popular. Like, cause I remember I've never read the book though. I have seen the movie and actually mm-hmm. I enjoyed the movie, both yeah. Eastwood and Street were great in it. I remember it happening, but so why are people embarrassed again? It's a romance and it's a little melodramatic. Yeah. I mean, it's, but it's just so, I think in the, in the realm of things you could be embarrassed about reading, like it's not, there's nothing terrible about this book. Maybe it's just that it's, it it was so commercially successful and it's kind of a a boring commercially successful book. Um, Uh, Yeah. I guess I would have expected, I mean, I really wasn't sure what to expect outside of Twilight and, you know, I and people would be shades, ashamed, yeah. ashamed of, you know, I, I don't think correct. I mean, I don't think anyone should be ashamed by this stuff, but that's a different conversation. Right. Um, I would have thought the notebook would have been much more recent yeah. and more popular and just in general, like that book I think of as even more sort of mawkish than yeah, the Bridges I, yeah, of I mean, Madison it, County. I do too. I've read some Nicholas Sparks as an experiment. Yeah. <laughs> um, know thine enemy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what what happened with these results, and I, I can go back and take a look, is that uh, a couple people mentioned The Notebook. A couple people mentioned The Wedding, which is another Nicholas Sparks title. Um, I think the last song got mentioned, maybe one other Nicholas Sparks oh, book. Oh, so in aggregate, maybe there were more maybe. Nicholas Sparks and think, mentions than just the 14. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe one or two people said 
Nicholas Sparks, like answered him uh, the way that people answered romance novels. So it's um, spread out over the whole island. And then, like, and and they don't always respondents to these surveys don't always put the author's name um, there. They just put in the title, Mm -hmm. which which is fine, except that I can't recognize every Nicholas Sparks book title. So Mm. if we if we were to aggregate like the Notebook and the Wedding and the Last Song plus the mentions of his name plus like whatever a walk right whatever all the other titles are that might have come up, it might have. the total mentions of his books might have outweighed Bridges of Madison County. I'm not sure. Did Robert James Wall write anything else? Do you know? Uh, mm, I don't know. We'll find out. We'll, we'll follow up next That's time. a good question. That's a good follow-up. But I think the, the thing that really surprised me about it was that our readers, that so many of our readers had read The Bridges of Madison County and remembered it enough to, remembered their to shame be embarrassed. Enough like to I was, yeah, it. I was 10 when it came out in yeah. 1992, and I think I was 12 when I sneak read it off my mom's bedside table by, like, by about 1994 when it made it to Oprah and it was making the rounds in book clubs and my mom was reading it. And I didn't even really remember that I had read this book. Um, and at 30, I'm sort of right in the middle of Book Riot's readership. So I was surprised yeah. like that, I would have thought, that like, this was Jonathan present Livers enough. And Siegel or like the alchemist, or I don't, I don't know something like of the things that were popular, like 15 or 20 years ago that in hindsight, like, oh, maybe that was a little overhyped yeah, or something. There was, a, there was a good number of Eat, Pray, Love. I think Eat, yeah, Pray, Love oh, almost made, yeah. almost made the top 10, but not quite. And then um, rounding out the 10 here are Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews at eight, mm-hmm. Atlas Shrugged by uh, Rand at 11. And then, as you said, did you, you already wrapped up the top 10. I'm sorry. You already oh, yeah, that. yeah, that's all right. Um, and readers, since you can, our listeners, uh, we'll drop those links into the show notes. If you want to poke around at the full list of yeah, responses. Yeah, it's interesting and, to see. And uh, and find all the Nicholas Sparks mentions for us or whatever else. Let us know which, what you see in there. Um, we've got a few infographics in the post of the uh, the patterns that we saw in responses, but we'd be happy to to know what you discover if you feel like nerding out on the I, info. I've got one more question for you about this, mm-hmm. just what you think. So let's go back to the top real quick. Okay. I don't think either of us are surprised to see Twilight and Fifty Shades up at the top, mm-hmm. but I, I guess I was expecting those to be flipped. People ah. are more embarrassed to have read Twilight than Fifty Shades, I think is interesting. And by like a fact, by like a double. Or maybe just more, of, just like maybe more of our readers have read Twilight than well, have read uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. So more of them can be. I guess that's possible. Ashamed by it. The publishing numbers suggest otherwise. Yeah. Unless, they do. unless we're, unless our readers are skewed. I mean, they're skewed towards awesome, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I just thought that let's, let's say that it's not skewed, that that actually mm-hmm. represents a real sort of, uh, Condition. Why, why, why do you think people might be, if they are more embarrassed about having read Twilight than Fifty Shades, why do you think that is? Well, so Twilight's been out in the culture okay. longer, and there, so there's been more time for the literary establishment, such as to this, crack on it, like to just crack chip on away it and to shame time. readers mm-hmm. for loving it. And, and I think um, also what's there is that a lot of readers really did um, uh, love passionately the Twilight series. And when I was a bookseller, I met a lot of teen readers who like hadn't finished a book in years I until see. they picked up Twilight. And then they binged through those four books and reading four big books that they plowed through so quickly, like reminded them that they could read and enjoy reading and it sort of propelled them down the road of becoming readers. And so I think Twilight played a big role in a lot of young readers' lives. And then like and then they got on the internet and people started telling them that they shouldn't. Well, maybe love they just 
got older and they're like, yeah. oh boy, right. was I like ever they, excited yeah, about that? Yeah, they got on the internet and people started telling like them that they shouldn't love ice. those books. <laughs> Don't be, you cannot be ashamed of Vanilla Ice. I'm not ashamed Jeff. of Vanilla Ice, but I'm a little ashamed of how much I loved Vanilla Ice when I was 13. Oh, no, no. But you see what I'm saying there I as do. an analogy. Yeah, I think there's... I think there's some of that at play, right? They get a little bit older. Um, maybe the Twilight reading does lead to reading um, some more literary types of fiction and they become embarrassed yeah. about like what they read back <laughs> when they didn't know any better. I don't right. know. And I, then I, when I mean, they're English majors in high school and people, I, like, people are cracking on yeah, Twilight and they're both, like, oh yeah, I, you know, I never, I never read that. And, like, but yeah, secretly I love it. You and I and, and Book Riot in general are, are sort of of the opinion that like nobody should be ashamed for what they choose to read. Right ever for any reason. Um, but I think there's just more out there. Like, uh, I've seen a lot, you know, tons of people read 50 shades of gray because it was the thing that everyone was talking about. And I have read, you know, reviews where, um, bloggers generally, like genuinely enjoyed the books, but I don't think, um, it played quite a ro- quite as big of a role in readers lives as twilight did, at least for people that are in that demographic that read Book Riot. I think I said uh, last show that when we did the results, I would talk about the one the one series that oh, I yes, you teased that. pretended not to have read Nancy Drew when I was oh. a kid. You pretended not to have read Nancy yeah, Drew? Yeah, I, I just, I, it's, it's not like I ever like outright lied about it, but it, like if someone was talking about like, you know, what books are you reading or how did you read this year or recently mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, I would not, I would not um, offer up ah. that I had uh, read in a what we now would call binge reading mm-hmm. fashion, um, the entire Nancy Drew series, and I think it was like in fifth grade or something like that. Oh yeah, me too. So that's my one. Have you ever done this? No. Done what? Pretended, pretended not to, to have read something. This doesn't sound like a Shinsky thing. No, I'm. Yeah. Sort of uh, like maybe one of my superpowers is just owning the things yeah. I'm into, no matter how dorky they might be. Um, I have definitely pretended to have read. Books, you know, I like in the sake of or uh, for the sake of like cocktail party (laughs) conversation (laughs) or uh, like just, you know, keeping a social situation easy rather than admitting that I haven't read the thing they're talking about. I'm I'm better about like as an adult, I'm pretty good about like, no, I haven't read that. Tell me tell me why you love it or why I should read it. But I've I've definitely done that. I have definitely pretended to have read things. I will, I'll own up to the, the yeah. things that I read. And like, I mean, I, I have recently tweeted most of the lyrics to paradise by the dashboard. So this, this is a, um, no shame this below is, that. No. Sh- yeah. They're, uh, how I roll is like, this is the stuff I like. <laughs> <laughs> I just one a couple of last observations about this before we move on is like, see how many of these are series. I thought was interesting. Oh yeah, so, uh, so we got game Twi- series, Fifty Shades, Twilight, Twilight. There and were the Sleeping few, Beauty. yeah, the the Sleeping Beauty ones. Um, there were a few mentions of Harry Potter on the list. Oh, Sookie Stackhouse, mm-hmm. Flowers in the Attic. I didn't know when people listed it if they meant just Flowers in the Attic or if they meant that whole V.C. Right. Andrews yeah, series. Could be both. Um, so most of them are series. A lot of romance novels are series, and so these are all sort of like. The books that you can that you can binge through that there's a ready supply. Yeah, you know. The other thing there. I thought was interesting is the oldest book on the list of the top ten is Atlas Shrugged and, uh, mm-hmm. by Rand in 1957. Everything else is relatively recent. You know, the last few decades. And it just does show you over time that 
literary history like mm-hmm. gets rid of the embarrassing things or people are embarrassed to read. Yeah. And there's an interesting thing going on in the comments thread on this post mm-hmm. about Atlas Shrugged where, where people are starting, starting to take apart, like, should you be embarrassed of having read Atlas Shrugged or should right. you just be embarrassed that you loved Atlas Shrugged? And or I, like at I, one time you thought that yeah, it was going to inform your worldview and now you come back to you know, some, right. some more moderate position. I'm curious about how these results might have been different if we had asked, what book are you embarrassed to admit you love, rather than mm. what, are you, what are you just embarrassed to admit that you've read? That's um, interesting. We'll have to put that in the uh, Rolodex of ideas for our future monthly yes. polls. Um, anyway, so I thought that was in it, that, 19, that we don't have like, there are, no one's embarrassed to read a classic, even if they hate it. <laughs> right. you know, no one's embarrassed to read right. sort of older books, I guess. Um, and those ones that I guess that were embarrassing, people felt embarrassing, just don't survive mm-hmm. over time, which doesn't say a lot about, frankly, the um, long term cultural relevance of right. Twilight. You know, if we, Shades or, if we could revisit all these respondents who took this survey in, yeah. in a decade and ask them the same question, I'd. I really doubt any of them would remember to be embarrassed about the bridges of Madison. Oh, County. I, I, that just remind that just reminded me. Like, so let's say we did this in twenty years. What would be the British bridges of Madison County for right now? Like the thing. Like, hmm. I was gonna go with the uh, the help. Oh yeah, probably. Yeah, probably something the like help. That. Or, yeah, something like that. That had a huge cultural moment. Yeah. But when you actually think about it, it's a little shallow. It's a little like, yeah, it's not quite uh, what it was made out to be. Anyway, that was, that was one last thought. All right, let's go. Mm-hmm. Let's go big picture, bigger okay. picture. Yeah. So this is going to be about books here in a minute, but hold on to your hats just a little bit. So um, one thing we talked about on the site um, before is this, I don't even know what you call it. It's just a thing called the Bechdel test which mm-hmm. um, is named for Alison Bechdel, who is a graphic novelist. Um, and she came up with it as kind of a quick check um, to see how a work of a narrative work of art is dealing with women. Like mm-hmm. are, are women being treated sort of with some sophistication or interest, or are they just supporting characters to um, the story um, and aren't being given the sort of the full reign of what a fully fledged character can do. And so ba- the test is pretty e- easy is like, does this work have more than one female character? And do those characters talk to each other about something other than men? Right. Is that, that's <laughs> right. it. That's, that's it. it. So like, do they talk about anything other than the fellows in the story? So you got to have two women and they have to talk to each other about something other than men. Um, and the thing, once you start doing this is how many, things fail this like it's really staggering it really really it's really not fun to do if you want to feel good about how most art treats women um so that's that and it it gets tossed around a lot right that it's a litmus test in Mm -hmm. in the way that a a good litmus test works it's sort of a quick thing like you shouldn't end the conversation there um but that's sort of like like how is this thing sort of stack up yeah it's not this book doesn't pass the bechdel test and therefore there's nothing worthy about this book but it's uh it's an interesting way to take a quick like temperature check of how does this work of art or narrative storytelling treat women right Um, if that's a thing that you value yeah that's right and i think we do um, do. ourselves on the site that's something we think about openly um and so anyway, recently there was um, this movie called Pacific Rim that came out. You might have heard of it. And there aren't multiple female characters who talk to each other about uh, things other than men in it. There's just one main female character named Mako Mori. 
And someone sort of brought up as the way the internet does that the Pacific Rim doesn't pass the Bechdel test. But then someone else suggested that, well, she may not talk to another woman about things not related to men, but she has her own story arc that's unrelated mm-hmm. to helping the other men fulfill their story arcs. And sort of the conversation became, and this was a, an a essay on dailydot.com, we'll link it in the show notes, um, saying, well, what about the Makomori test? Does a woman have, and let me read um, what, the, uh, what the qualifications would be here. I think, I think it is just that she has her own story arc that, is, that changes and it's, com- and it's complicated and it's not in service of just the men's storyline. So I'm not going to do any spoilers. You can read the, mm-hmm. read the essay if you're interested in what this might be. Okay, here it is. At least one female character who gets her own narrative arc and is not supporting a man's story. So I hit all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought that was interesting because we like to think about how um, culture treats a whole bunch of different people. But the Bechtel test is one we've heard about books. And what do you think of using this one compared to the Bechtel test for art? Like, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. I don't interesting know that one to... is better than the other, but or, I, I was curious maybe, what you thought. I think maybe you use them together. I yeah. like this Mako Mori test as a complement to mm-hmm. the Bechdel test or an alternative option. And I like that the cultural conversation about how women are, are treated in art and in having their own storylines that aren't just about getting the man or helping the man fulfill his goals. Like our, our conversation about that is evolving and is moving forward. If we're, if we're coming up with not just putting a work of art through the Bechdel test, but looking at other ways that we might start analyzing those works of art. So it's, I, I'm encouraged here that this Mako Mori test is being, you know, suggested like that someone was like, Hey, maybe the Bechdel test isn't the only thing that we can use. Maybe we can talk about other pieces too. Like it would be awesome if a story passed the Bechdel test and the Mako Mori test, like women had their own. Yeah. Arts. Right. And they got to talk to each other about stuff that wasn't men. That would be great. Um, but I think these are two really solid jumping off points for talking about right. um, stories that are told in books and in movies that we watch. Um, I, I think this is cool. Well, for example, here's here's one kind of weird example that, you know, the Harry Potter series is not really good on the Bechdel test, for example, if you start thinking about it. Mm. Um, but it would pass, say, uh, a Mako Mori test. Yeah, it um, would, and, and like the hung. I've been thinking about the Hunger Games. Yeah, like, interesting. Um, so much of the series hinges on the tension between Katniss, Peeta, Gale, that mm-hmm. that like that love triangle, and who she's going to choose, and um, not necessarily Katniss in a supporting role to the male characters, but definitely where her fate is tied mm-hmm. to to their fates. There aren't a lot of other female characters. She's primarily with Peta, so there's not a lot of conversation between Katniss right. and other female characters. But The Hunger Games, and I think rightfully so, gets held up as an example of a, a very strong, in many uh, in many senses of the word strong, female character yeah. um, for young readers and a strong arc. And, and Katniss certainly passes the Mako Mori test. Yeah, and the other thing I like about the Mako Mori test is that it, it has the phrase narrative arc. So it's mm-hmm. like something could technically pass the Bechdel test, like, you know, Katniss can talk to Prim for three sentences. Right. And it would, you know, about like fish or whatever. And it would technically pass the Bechdel test, but I don't think any of us would be sort of satisfied if that was, if mm-hmm. that was it. So that's like the, like a, a larger um, view of the story. Yeah. It feels like test. we're, we're adding some dimensions. Yeah. To it's also much more subjective because like her, like her own narrative arc, like what, 
rises to the level of having your own narrative mm. arc is not as cut and dried as is there X number that have X kind of conversations. Um, so it's it's a little grayer around the edges. And the Beck Deltas, I think one reason it became so popular is what's a, a, a cut and dried situation. Did this happen? Did this happen? Okay, great. Mm-hmm. It either passed or failed. Sure. And I don't think anybody's suggesting that uh, failing the Bechdel test or failing the Mako Mori test is a reason in and of itself to toss out oh, something. Oh, no. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you're absolutely I correct. Think, to, I think that's to important mention to, that. to mention. Um, anytime that we talk about the Bechdel test on the site, um, inevitably someone gets mad at us in the right. comments for um, for what they perceive as invalidating a book that they like simply because it doesn't satisfy the Bechdel right. requirements. And, well, because uh, listen, and, hold on to your hat for this one, but you know what the one we, I mean, this is for women. Like there isn't even a name of a test we think about for say black people. Right. <laughs> or I mean, like talk about, I mean, there's no Vita for, for black people or mm-hmm. non-white people. So there's a lot of work to be done on all fronts here. Sure. Um, and all works of arts are flawed in, in different ways, but this is a way of thinking about one particular thing. And um, I, I, I like this evolution of how you think about and characterize certain works and what, complication looks like and what representation mm-hmm. looks like. So that that's what I'm paying attention to. I've been thinking about that uh, in the books I've been reading recently of, yeah. of how to, to judge this stuff. Okay, we got, we're got we running out of time here. Let's we are. I'm going to flip the, yeah, the order I was just on you. Say, yeah. All right. So we're going from, from Mako Mori and women with their own narrative arcs to new books. New books. Because the new book that I am the most excited about this week and that I have been so excited for it to come out for a really long time um, is all about uh, women's narrative arcs in stories that I just can't resist. The book is called Troubled Daughters, Twisted Wives. Uh, it's edited by Sarah Weinman, who, uh, if you are in publishing, you uh, probably recognize her from the work that she does on Publisher's Lunch. But Sarah is also a crime fiction aficionado. And this is an anthology of 14 short stories of domestic suspense uh, that were written between 1940 and the mid-1970s from people like Patricia Highsmith, whom we know from the talented Mr. Ripley, um, Shirley Jackson, who's best known for the lottery, Dorothy B. Hughes, uh, whose novel In a Lonely Place is sort of the like original precursor to Gone Girl. Um, and really, all of the stories in this collection, Troubled Daughters, Twisted Wives, um, are the stories that uh, by women writers in the crime fiction world who paved the way for stories like Gone Girl that um, are crime stories, but that are concerned not with... Um, you know, not with solving the mystery, not detective stories, and also aren't like sweeping stories of uh, like global conspiracy right. but they're, that are concerned primarily with domestic life, with like the dark side of marriage and the things that make you crazy about raising children. And uh, so these women, uh, these women writers between 1940 and the mid 70s sort of just took a scalpel to their contemporary society and they wrote crime stories that weren't just about the, the crime story, but that had a, a heavy element of um, social commentary. And so uh, if, like me, the thing that you loved about Gone Girl was that it, it was a thriller, but it had a very strong social perspective, you know, that that book really has a voice about uh, where women are in contemporary society. Troubled Daughters, Twisted Wives is right up your alley. Um, last year, after I loved Gone Girl, I asked Sarah on Twitter, where should I go back mm-hmm. into um, back into the history of thrillers to really get more crime fiction that has this social perspective? And uh, at that point, she recommended um, In a Lonely Place by Dorothy B. Hughes, which I read and I loved. Um, and so I have personally benefited from Sarah's book recommendations. And now you can too. Um, <laughs> I'm about halfway through this collection. It's organized um, 
chronologically by the age of the heroine in the story. So the very first story in the collection has a 21-year-old main character, and uh, the the woman at the center of each story gets a little bit older as the book goes through. And Sarah Mm -hmm. explains, there's a great introduction where she explains how she got interested in this project and why she thought it was important. And then she's written a nice, um, short pithy introduction to each story. So you also have some cultural context for who the woman was that wrote the story and what the story meant at the time it came out and what it means to her and, and what she thinks it means for readers now. It's, um, it is fantastic if you like crime fiction or you're at all interested in sort of what came before Gillian Flynn. Um, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. That's cool. Uh, quick mention for Two Boys Kissing by David Levithan, which is a young adult story that's based on true events. It, uh, its main characters are two 17-year-old boys who participate in a 32-hour marathon of kissing to set a new Guinness Book <laughs> world record. Uh, but the book is narrated by a Greek chorus of gay men who have died of AIDS. Um, and as these two boys at the center of the story go through the kissing marathon, you know, all sorts of other people around them uh, their lives become sort of tied into what's going on with these two young boys. I haven't read this book. I've been reading a ton of reviews of it this week. I'm super intrigued by the sort of Greek chorus narration. Um, by all accounts, Levithan is doing really gutsy, interesting things with young adult fiction. Uh, so if that sounds up your alley, it's called Two Boys Kissing. Sounds super interesting. Yeah. And then we got some good paperback stuff this week. Yeah. Uh, NW Northwest. I still don't know how people are actually referring to it by Zadie Smith. Yeah. Is that I think paperback? NW is what I've been hearing, but again, I'm on the internet mostly, so you're not really yeah. hearing anything. There. <laughs> yeah. You read that Jeff, right? No. I didn't. Oh, you didn't. I oh, wait, read no. it either. NW. Yes. 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 You yes. Did. I, I did read NW. Yeah I, yeah. I thought it was great. I really liked it. All right. Well, and it's out in paperback now, so you can do that. And dare me by Megan Abbott is also out in paperback this week. Um, if you want a contemporary Gillian Flynn sort of thing, Dare Me is awesome. It's about um, a group of high school cheerleaders who do really horrible, twisted things to each other. Uh, and the whole time you're trying to figure out really who the ringleader mm. is. It's like um, Mean Girls meets Bring It On meets Gone Girl. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I just loved the crap out of Dare Me. Um, and it's perfect you know, to sit on the beach and think sinister thoughts while you sweat in the sunshine. Yeah. So those are our new books Great. this week. Uh, and and now got, we have, and then we're going to be in the fall books next week. Yeah. Oh, fall book season, man. So we're going to, I mean, it didn't really dry up over the summer. We, we had stuff every week that you were talking about that was you know, interesting. And, and I think maybe it has something to do with the proliferation of ebook publishing, uh, but it yeah. feels like publishing's seasons are starting to bleed into yeah. each other. Like, uh, historically fall has been the big season for books the way it's the big season for movies. And then like sp- late spring has been the other big one as people gear up for summer reading. But now like big books come out in mid January. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and big books come out in August. It's yeah, really, <laughs> that is, it is true. That's, it's kind of flattening out a little bit. Kind of like television is done where you have like, right. you get breaking bad and in stuff the in the, of the summer, summer, which used to be just a complete wasteland for television. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of when books go on sale, let's end here. Oh, it's so cool. This, this is, is our cool thing is, of the week. This is a cool thing of the week. Nextread.me um, emails you when a book you're waiting for goes on sale. Yeah. I remember I'm- when I was you know, a kid and I wasn't following publishing in any serious way. I mean, I'd look at the New York Times book review and some other things every now and again, but 
I would have no idea that a favorite book, a favorite author had a new book coming out until like I walked into the bookstore. Yeah. And it was there. And even now it's hard to know um, when a new book by a favorite author is coming out. Mm-hmm. So next read, I guess that's well, so it. I mean, what else is it about besides well, it's, that? It's sale like sale price. Um, not when, it, when oh, the book yes, becomes I'm sorry. available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was talking about so, that too. Like then there's yeah. no idea like when it would be in paperback or if they would ever get a 40% off sticker or anything like that. Right. So you, um, you log in to nextread.me through your Facebook account. That's, um, that's the only way to log in and it, um, it shows you automatically which books, um, your friends have liked. And I think they've sort of kept this remarkably simple. And yeah. it's very, it's very smart. When you hover over a book's cover, you have two choices. You can click that you want to read it, or you can click that you recommend it, which pops up a book, uh, uh, pops up a window where you can put something on your Facebook page about it, or you can just click a little heart that indicates that you liked the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so the very first thing you get when you log in is a, a listing of books that your friends have liked. Um, then you can see books that are popular on next read things that are currently on sale, new and noteworthy prize winners. And then they've got more sections like uh, recently reviewed in the New York times, 10 books to better understand the world, um, little collections. But so they're, they take the book like uh, the power of habit by Charles Duhigg, which I loved is one of their popular books mm-hmm. right now. You click that you want to read it. And then um, next read monitors the Amazon Kindle store and notifies you when the book goes on sale. It's really cool. It's um, just one of those things, like more information about when books are available and for what price and just flexibility. And it's, it's simple and it's clean. Yeah, um, it's really cool. I would love it if there were more options than just the Amazon store. Like yeah. maybe they'll, maybe they'll build that out. But what I'm looking at right now, this looks like a really awesome start to something. It's a smart idea. Yeah. I mean, it solves a problem, right? It does. And I'm starting to see more and more like on Twitter, especially like the ebook of something will be on sale for a day mm-hmm. and I miss it. I don't, I'm right. not on Twitter at the right time. And I come back the next day and say, Oh crap, that. So um, Rachel Kushner's uh, first book, um, she released the uh, Flamethrowers this mm-hmm. year, which I read and, and liked. And I hadn't read the first one, and I was and had in the back of my mind like, you know, someday I'd like to go back and read that. Well, the other day I'm, I'm on Twitter and it's like today only it's on her first book's on sale for two bucks. I'm like, great, and then it was yeah. too late. Right. Um, so that would be really awesome to know. Right. You, you know, don't always, do some of these things. Yeah, you don't always know like when something is going to go on sale just for one day um, or for a limited time, like Freakonomics is on sale right now. Right. And and who knows why the book is like a decade old, but it's still really interesting. I think publishers are starting to play with putting stuff on sale and getting a spike and people will then put it on their Goodreads shelves or like it on Facebook or just start talking about it again. One's on here. I just read Perks of Being a Wallflower this summer Mm -hmm. and it's on sale right now for six bucks. Sure. And then we came to the end by Jonathan yeah. or Joshua Ferris, um, which is great. I guess uh, you're the kind of person that's like a really long to be read list. Mm-hmm. This might be a way of like ordering that, like what's on sale. I'm going to look over here and what's on sale and, and I'll yeah, go buy it, that. It seems like, um, like if Amazon, which now owns Goodreads, is smart, mm-hmm. Amazon will buy Next Read. Yeah, or and do either, their own version, I guess. Right, and like hook it into what's going on with Goodreads. Because if you could import your Goodreads want to read mm-hmm. list into Next Read and then get notified every time the thing that you want was on sale, like that that's a pretty seamless. Yeah, that's pretty um, nice reading experience. That's pretty nice. So, um, so that's our cool tech bookish thing. Good job. Week. Next read. We like that. And I guess that's our show. We have more stories we're going to talk about for next time. There'll be new things that we don't have any idea they're going to happen. Yep. Um, one thing we might say, cause it'll happen between now and the next show is on September 3rd, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we are doing one of our semi-annual riot reading days in which we're devoting the whole day's worth of content um, on the site to one author. And this author is Margaret Atwood um, because the third book in her, it's called the Year of the Flood series, right? It's the Mad Adam the trilogy. Mad, now it's the Mad Adam trilogy because Mad mm-hmm. Adam is the third book in the series. It's coming out on Tuesday. Yes. And it's And so awesome. we're writing about... Not just that series, though some about that series, but mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood in a whole bunch of different ways. And, 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 and. And, and. We, and you want to, you want to, okay, you want to do it now. Okay, do it now. And, say it, say it, and, say it. And, 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 and. We have a guest post from Margaret Atwood. From Margaret Atwood herself. She's writing for from the Mar- And it's so good. And it's great. I've been like Muppet arming at my desk for a week already about We won't tell you what it's about, this. Um, but it's, it's cool. A, and it's a, it's it's cool. a thing we do on Book Riot. It's a, it's a recurring feature. Yeah, so we have a day at Book Riot devoted to Margaret Atwood, and Margaret Atwood has been kind enough to come and really act as a book rioter for a day. Well, she's awesome, so she's great. The book, the new book, is great. I just finished it earlier this week. Well, you you break the rule of only talking about books that are out, but I guess that's I I I talked about stuff that wasn't even on the site yet, so I guess I. uh, I broke the dam there a little bit. So but when come you check on the this... site on Tuesday, September 3rd. You get back from Labor Day. You're back yep. at school or the office. We'll have a bunch of Margaret Atwood stuff. Um, usually we post things every 45 minutes or an hour. But on Riot Reading Days, everything for the day goes up at once so that you can get your fill. Yep. And, and if you're uh, looking for Atwood. a good Labor Day weekend uh, reading project, you, will not, you won't do any better than to yeah, read Oryx and Crate and the Year of the, of the flood. flood and then be ready for Tuesday or, for Matt Adam. For Matt Adam on Tuesday. So I'm Jeff O'Neill, Reading Ape. You're Rebecca Shinsky at Rebecca Shinsky on Twitter. Spell your last name for the folks. S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Got some feedback for the show, podcast at bookriot.com. If you want to rate us on iTunes, we're still seeing ratings coming in. We're getting more listeners through that. So that's such a great help. Thank you so much for doing that. You can find show notes, uh, bookriot.com slash category slash podcast. You can listen to this show there um, and see the links of the stories we talked about this week. Did I cover everything? Uh, we have a quick survey, seven questions. Yeah. It'll take you less than two minutes. Uh, the link to that will be in the show notes. And if you would just take a few minutes to tell us a little bit about who you are, it will help us identify the best, most relevant sponsors uh, for the show. So we would appreciate that. And as Jeff mentioned, iTunes ratings are welcome. And we read all the reviews and are happy to uh, make adjustments to how we do things based on your feedback. So please let us know what you think. That's that's great. So have a great Labor Day weekend, everybody. A lot of you will listen to us over the weekend. And we We'll catch you during the unofficial start of fall, the first week of September next week. Yes, indeed. We'll see All you right. then. Bye. Bye.